Happy Monday, my Liberty Kitty Cats. And before we get into today's flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, I've got to make sure you guys know about the amazing year-end promotion we have going on on our Patreon right now. Of course, you can find that at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Our patrons, our members of the Lions of Liberty Pride fully support this show, and we reward them for that with all sorts of exclusive bonus content, including the latest that dropped this weekend, Drunken Howie Story, where our good friend Howie Snowden gets drunk and uh, tries to recap a libertarian story. In this case, it was Anatomy of the State. You got to check that out. We've got so much coming for the Pride, including you'll get an exclusive live stream of the Dave Smith debate, the next Dave Smith debate. He's actually debating one of our Pride members, Archie Flower. So be sure to check that out. That will be streaming live this Friday to the Secret Pride Facebook group. But for now, until the end of the year, you can get Two months free. That's right. Two entire freaking months for free by joining at the annual level. If you get an annual subscription to the Lions of Liberty Pride, you're going to get 16% off. That is two entire months for free. You cannot beat that, and you will not be able to beat that after December 31st. When the year changes, that deal will end, and you're probably never going to see it again. So head over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Consider supporting the greatest libertarian variety show on earth. You may as well hop aboard now and get two free months. Months while you're at it. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, Kitty Cats, my guest today is a libertarian conservative journalist and writer. He is the host of the new podcast, Breaking Boundaries, with Brad Palumbo. He is, of course, Brad Palumbo. Brad, are you ready to roar? I am. Thanks for having me on, man. Brad, it's a, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I've seen your work here and there, as well as on Twitter. Uh, we don't need to get into the tank thing right now, but we can eventually, maybe. We'll see. Uh, but but uh, you've been making a name for yourself as a libertarian, conservative writer, and with your new podcast. And I, I have a, a little bit of a soft spot myself for journalists, as I actually started in college as a journalism major. Quickly got away from that once I realized I didn't really like the way the courses were teaching me to be a journalist. Uh, but it kind of came full circle, I guess, in a way, since I'm sort of doing some kind of journalism here at the podcast. But we'll get into all that stuff in a bit. But but first, I want to learn a little bit more about you. So how did this all get started for you? Take us down a little bit of your path, how you got into journalism, how you got into you know politics overall. Wow. Yeah. So it, for me, it starts at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, which I'm from Massachusetts. I'm from New England. Uh, America runs on Duncan, baby. But um, and so people don't most people don't know this unless they study economics or they work in the field. But the University of Massachusetts Amherst has the rare distinction of being the only openly Marxist economics department in American higher education. Openly as in it's like uh, on the placard, like like they, they fully advertise it. Well, so technically they would be called heterodox economists, but they are Marxists and they identify as Marxists. They're actually known for that. It's not like a, I'm not saying that as an insult. They would say, yes, we are Marxist right. economists. They edit Marxist journals and and so on. So uh, one of one of the professors there actually was Bernie Sanders, senior economic advisor, in 2016, and did some very funky math for some of his proposals. Anyway, though, so what happened is I went in there, kind of a political, um, and I was really thrown into this like far left bubble. So it was Marxist economics I was being taught. Uh, we read Adam Smith like once, I think, and then we spent the rest of the semester on on Das Kapital, 
and I had one of my professors whitewashing the Soviet Union and telling us how great it was and never mentioning the word gulag until I raised my hand and asked him a question. What was the question? What about gulags? <laughs> I, I was just like, so you're talking about all these amazing things about the Soviet Union. Are we going to talk about this, the, the stagnation and starvation and gulags and eventual collapse? Uh, and she was, and she, she was like, well, yes, there is nuance to the conversation. <laughs> and I was like, um, but anyway, so I went to this really far left campus and it was far left on economics and I really recoiled at it. So I went and kind of self-educated, you know, I read Milton Friedman, I read Thomas Sowell. I started reading the wall street journal editorial page. Uh, and I very much became a kind of classical free market economics guy, um, very, very much in the, in the mold of Friedman. Um, and so the other half of the equation was that it was very much a far left social justice bubble, right? It was the kind of place where people would uh, introduce themselves with their pronouns, and but only to virtue signal, never actual trans people were the ones doing it. I noticed that uh, a lot. <laughs> Yes, that tends to be a thing. Um, and, and then it was the kind of place where if you I, I, if you even spoke out with a conservative opinion, uh, you would just get instantly slammed as bigot, racist. I, and so what happened is, sorry, I, this is a long winded way of introducing my kind of journalism story. I started journeys are what this podcast is for. So please go on. <laughs> Great. Well, I, so I started as a columnist at the campus newspaper and I wrote some very lukewarm center right takes and got accused of doing violence to women, um, of perpetuating a hate crime with a column. Um, I would get hundreds of angry comments and emails uh, on the bright side. I set the traffic record 10 times and broke my own record. Uh, but I, they really couldn't handle even things like, hey, maybe we should have due process in campus sexual assault proceedings. Hey, maybe the Second Amendment should be allowed on college campuses because they're owned by the government and can't infringe our rights. Even these things that that in libertarian or conservative circles would be fairly standard. It was like they viewed me as like a Milo Yiannopoulos light. Uh, and I was I quickly became a reviled figure, particularly within the gay community. Uh, where I so I came out uh, after my first year of college, and ironically enough, they were the most vicious ones to me, um, <laughs> more than anyone else. Do they see you as so, a, a traitor or something, some, something of that nature? Yeah, and they would send really nasty messages or tell me to kill myself or call me traitor That's or whatever. Nice. But so essentially, it was like this far left bubble, and I really skewed to the opposite side, um, kind of as a knee jerk reaction. And I, I, looking back, you know, the, there's a lot I would change. I, I was definitely a little bit Charlie Kirky at first, but over time I became much more libertarian and much more nuanced. But it, that kind of changed me and put me on the track to have right wing free market beliefs. And that's still where I am today. So for you, it was, I mean, a lot of people go there and probably, I assume, just kind of get, you know, get into the indoctrination. They actually just start to believe everything they're here without questioning. Uh, but for you, it seemed like it was more like a backlash effect. Like you were so, the stuff was so pushed upon you and you knew it wasn't quite right that it made you actually go in the other direction altogether. Yeah. So I, so it's interesting because this was all in 2015, 2016, right when Trump was running for president. And I remember feeling like, just the exact, I didn't vote for Trump. I voted for Gary Johnson and I would vote for him again. I don't regret that. Um, 
though I certainly became less anti-Trump over time, but I, I but I didn't vote for him this time either. And I and I don't regret that. Um, but the context here is that I still remember my college dorm when he won at night, people in the lobby were crying. The classes the next day were canceled and they just had cry-ins and talked about the professors talked about their feelings and I was like, excuse me, I pay like $500 an hour for this bullshit course uh, and you're not even going to teach it. You're just going to let rich college students from the suburbs of Boston whine about how their feelings are hurt. They actually called it a cry in. Yes. Wow. That's not that's, unironically. That's <laughs> and they had like tissues. Uh, now, our campus didn't do this, but I read about other campuses that brought in puppies. Um <laughs> <laughs> I do love dogs. I mean, I, lo- I love puppies too, but uh, it's, it's um, wow. anyway, though. So th- that's the kind of thing. It's like watching people behave like that makes you want to vote for Trump. Makes you like, honestly, that's where the trigger the libs impulse comes from. And I get it. I override it with kind of logic and reasoning and not, I've become very anti-tribal and very nonpartisan uh, over the years because I really think those are toxic influences, but that's what it comes from for young right-wing people. And I certainly understand the impulse after everything I witnessed on on that far-left campus. Yeah, I mean, even as people like us, uh, you and I, I I don't see myself as part of any tribe. I try not to even get myself too much as part of a quote-unquote libertarian tribe, but it can be hard sometimes because we are humans. And I think the sort of the the extreme, a lot of the extreme positions we see, see coming out of the left where you can see them attack someone who is like a moderate conservative or something, or even someone like Tim Poole gets attacked as a far-right Nazi just because he does, he questions a lot of the, the leftist narratives, mm-hmm. but he's a Bernie Sanders supporter. Even people like him are considered to the right. It's, it's Sometimes it can be hard to not say, okay, I, I just, I have to put this aside and, and be a Trump person because I, I know I'm not for that. And pl- I mean, there's times when it's hard not to be like, man, and sometimes I just, I just want to stick it to these people because they're so freaking insane and won't leave, won't get off my case. Uh, but I don't because I, I get myself together and say, okay, I can't. I actually look at that side and realize that there's 27 problems I have with that too, 27,000 probably. Uh, so how do you how do you manage to to walk that line and and keep yourself sort of centered and out of any one tribe uh, while while being a journalist and, and while writing opinion pieces and trying to maintain so, some sort of because I think that was the thing for me that was the most difficult that, that I really didn't like about my journalism classes is because at least what I was taught is they, they kind of taught us this method of, of unbiased writing. But even at that point, as a freshman in college, starting to learn these classes, I was saying to myself, like, that's not true. Like you, everyone is biased. Everyone has a bias. Right. And if anything, a, a real journalist to me should be someone who just reveals their bias and is upfront with everything, not who pretends they don't have a bias. Because I find when people pretend they don't have a bias, all they really do is convince themselves that their point of view is the truth. And now they think they're not biased because they're just point. They're just saying the truth. I completely agree. And I mean, I'm an opinion journalist. I write and edit opinion articles, essays, and columns. And I've always been very upfront with that. I I worked at the Washington Examiner where I'm still a columnist, and it is a conservative magazine. My articles are labeled opinion at the top, right? It is very much transparently a center-right publication. uh, And it has diversity within that, but it's, it's not masquerading as objective. And that's part of the problem with journalism. I did not study journalism in college. Journalism as a major is totally useless in most in most instances. <laughs> it made me run away from it entirely. Uh, I studied economics and political science, a double major, because that's what I wanted to cover. 
And I think there's more utility. If you have any college students who are listening who want to get into journalism, that's what I would recommend doing. The actual old school idea of this so-called objective journalist, it just, it's kind of absurd. I mean, and, and what you end up with is people like CNN who every anchor on there that's supposedly a um, neutral journalist has just become a rank partisan pundit. And it's just open and obvious. And that's okay, I guess. I mean, there's a space for that. But the problem is the reason the media has such tank low approval ratings is because they they people have a great BS detector and they know when this when what they're seeing is not what they're being told that it is. So I think that the, the real solution is just you should not try to be unbiased or neutral. What you should try to be is fair. And what I try to be is fair and fact-based. So for example, I think regulating section 230 or repealing it for big tech is a bad idea. And so I say the same thing about it, whether it's Joe Biden that's supporting that proposal, which he does, or whether it's Donald Trump that's supporting that proposal, which he does. Same thing with trade tariffs. I think they're always a bad idea, except in very, very rare circumstances. But in our modern politics, every instance I think is pretty much bad. Uh, And I say that whether it's Trump or Bernie. So obviously I have a Ben. I have politicians like Rand Paul who I'm pretty keen on, right? But you have to be fair in the sense that you're always making sure what you're saying is tied to facts and you're looking at the policies, not the letter next to their name. And that's what I try to do. I've written favorably about Democrats like Tulsi Gabbard because I agree with a lot of her message. So that's how I try to counteract it. But nobody's perfect. I can be tribal sometimes. So can we all. But the people who are trying to counteract that and trying to be fair, even though they know they're not unbiased, those are the people who I think positively contribute to our discourse and to journalism. Sure. And that's why I I follow people all over the spectrum. Like I follow people like Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi, Mm -hmm. Tim Pool, by no means libertarians or anywhere close really in their beliefs. But I see them as fair people, people that that actually look at things uh, in a a fair way and try to be fair to to whatever subject they're approaching. And I know what their views are and I can I can disagree with their views while at the same time thinking that they're treating every issue in in a fair way or at least as fair as they possibly can. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And I, I also, I, I know Glenn a little bit and I interviewed him on my podcast. He's like that. You know what he believes in. He believes in civil liberties and privacy and progressive policies like Medicare for all. And we've talked about that, but he'll believe in those things. And w- if the person in front of him is good on them, he'll say good things. If they're bad on them, he'll say bad things. doesn't matter whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, Trump or Liz Cheney, Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. That's the kind of person I respect. What I really have very little patience for is the kind of people where it's like, well, what do we believe today, gang? Let's go and look at it and see what Biden has flip-flopped to today or right, like the Nira Tandons of the world or the Trump partisan um, butt kissers and defenders who it's like, well, you know, we were all super pro Second Amendment, but he just said do the due process later uh, about red flag laws. So I guess we're OK with that now. Let's go defend it on Fox. So it is frustrating. And I will say that that being non-tribal or trying to be non-tribal in journalism, in today's journalism, I think over the long term, it pays off. But in the short term, it is extremely detrimental to your career interests. I mean, people like Charlie Kirk, 
is he's booked on Fox News like 10 times a week and has been for years under the Trump era. Now, I don't think his career will age well at all over time because he's just become kind of a Trump puppet and a partisan. But that just goes to show you the short term path to success is to simply become a team red or team blue avatar. And you can get the token seat on the CNN panel or vice versa. But if you want to have a long term serious career in policy and commentary and ideas, I think you have to go beyond that. Sure. I mean, I, I'm sure you could have taken that approach and just kind of shifted your your viewpoints and, and your opinion pieces more towards the the Charlie Kirkian sort of a, a point of view. And maybe you'd be on Fox News all the time, too. And that might that might be, quote unquote, better for your career in some kind of short term. But it, it wouldn't lend too much to your credibility as as what you're actually trying to be as, as a journalist. Right. I could have gone with the route and I, and I'm subtweeting someone here, but uh, conservative, gay and pro Trump. Right? Like I could have just gone down and doubled down on that and kind of made my own identity yeah. politics out of it. Uh, but I don't want to do that. And that's not going to age well. And so so the funny thing is that um, during the 2020 Democrat campaign uh, primary, I was on Fox all the time because they bring me on to discuss um, at Fox and Fox Business, the Democrat policies, Elizabeth Warren's climate plan, Bernie Sanders tax plan. And then they'd be like, all right, you're great at criticizing Democrat policies, come talk on. Uh, and then <laughs> after that kind of faded down, haven't been back on since. So maybe I'm sure, right. you know, I'm sure there'll be more opportunities in the Biden administration. But when you are not a, a team red or team blue avatar, the opportunities come and go. Um, but I think over time, I think it is a net benefit. And more importantly, it's just I get up every day blessed to get to do what I do as a journalist, as a writer. All I get paid to debate and write about ideas and things that matter in real people's lives. That is a privilege beyond words, frankly. I could be roofing houses and making half as much as I do. And those people work a lot harder than I do. And they don't have the intellectual luxury that I have to get to play intellectual games every day as my work. Um, which, I mean, maybe I'm just a little bit of a nerd, but I have an annotated copy of, of <laughs> uh, Milton Friedman, Free to Choose, on my desk. So the fact that I, I think get, the annotated part is what makes you a nerd. <laughs> yeah, and color-coded. Um, <laughs> so, but I'm saying that part of it, it that I get to do in my work is what makes it rewarding. But it, but it wouldn't be rewarding like that if I was just waking up every day and plugging into the, the partisan trenches even though that's the short-term path to, I think, clicks and attention and accolades. Right. Let's dig a little bit more into uh, into how you actually got into this as an actual career. I mean, you mentioned you were at the campus paper. I imagine your experience there is part of what led to this. But how did you go about uh, just jumping out of college and getting into actually getting paid to do what you love to do to write uh, about the topics you're you're passionate about? Uh, you know, a, a lot of people. I did an interview about you know three or four weeks ago with uh, Connor Dragotis, who wrote a book, Working for Liberty, trying to help people uh, get jobs doing like you, just do, working in the area that they're actually passionate about, uh, so they're not spending 40 hours a week doing one thing and then trying to kind of do it on the side. So how are you able to so quickly out of college uh, make that leap directly into doing something you do love and to actually writing about the issues that you care about? Well, it's interesting because there's kind of two paths. And, and I will say, I will certainly say that I wouldn't have been able to do any of it without some of the, the Liberty Movement programs that got me from where I was as a college campus uh, columnist to being a full-time working journalist in, in the Liberty space. 
And those programs, so basically I started as a columnist in my campus newspaper, made a little bit of a name for myself, got kind of writing skills improved. And about halfway through college, I joined a program called Young Voices, young-voices.com. Young Voices is a libertarian-leaning, free-market-leaning journalism training program where they basically take young center-right and libertarian writers and help them break in and get professionally published. So through Young Voices, I was able to get um, lots of op-eds published in the Washington Examiner, USA Today, National Review, The Daily Beast, all sorts of stuff. And really, I built up clips in a portfolio that let me, after graduation, I went in the Charles Koch Media and Journalism Fellowship. So that's another thing I recommend to people. The Charles Koch Institute has great internship programs and fellowships that really help people in the liberty movement get off their feet when they graduate college. Because here's the thing. If you're a lib and you're a journalism major, there's tons of jobs for you out there. There's a very limited number of jobs for libertarian or conservative leaning journalist people. The New York Times is not going to snap you up in most cases with rare exception. So there are some of these programs like Young Voices and like the Charles Koch Institute's programs that fill in the gaps. So obviously, I think I worked hard. I did a lot of, uh, of hustle. A lot of it, you know, I was doing on top of being a student. At 9 p.m., I was writing an op-ed and redrafting it while other people were going to the party. But a lot of it I owe to the people that helped me along the way and the Liberty Movement programs uh, that kind of gave me the opportunity that I never would have had. So that it certainly wasn't the UMass Career Services Department Right. It had a lot more to do with kind of meeting people in the liberty movement and, um, and and the programs and making the most of them. And that's how I got hired at the Washington Examiner, where I worked for um, over a year and still work part time. And then I moved to FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, doing free market economic and policy analysis writing, which is what I do full time now, in addition to the podcast. So I made a career somehow of writing about uh, stuff that I, I find interesting every day. Uh, and, it, and it's a blessing, frankly, but it's not easy to do. But if you're really determined, it is possible. And I think the key there is that these are, are subjects that you're passionate about. So, you know, the, you were able to put that hustle in and stay up till till midnight or 2 a.m. drafting drafting a piece because you actually love doing it. So when you love the process, when you actually enjoy what you're doing, like I love doing interviews. I love talking to people about this stuff. So it's fun. I don't go, oh, I got to do an interview, uh, except for sometimes when I wake up hungover or something. We don't need to talk about that. Uh, but you know, the, the, the key is to really be putting yourself into things that are you're passionate about. And not everybody maybe can do that with their full-time job right away. Uh, but the more you can start to do a little of that here and there, the more you're going to open up doors, the more you're going to make connections to people and the more you're going to kind of at least find some way to get your foot in the door actually doing something that you love closer to full-time or eventually like full-time like you yeah i I mean in college i wasn't making any money from the op-eds i was writing they were later on i made some as a freelancer but at first i was writing for free dozens and dozens of articles just to build up a portfolio while i was working nights at, uh, as a security guard on campus. So it was um, exactly like what you just described. And eventually that laid the groundwork for me to get a full-time position. First a part-time position, then a full-time position. And people ask, it's funny because people will accuse me sometimes of like, oh, you're a Coke shill. Or like, you just, you just take big money at these libertarian nonprofits or what, because a lot of media is nonprofit now. And I'm like, bro, 
if I wanted money, this is not the career path I would have gone down. You know how you'd be uh, you'd be Charlie. You know, or well, no, no, no. I wouldn't even be in journalism. I would have gotten a finance degree. Oh yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, so, uh, so what subjects are you actually most passionate writing about? You know, if you have to like focus on certain areas and, and since you're freelance, you, you kind of can do that. Uh, what are the areas that actually get you the most excited to write about? You know, I like to write about policy, broadly speaking. I, I find less interesting, you know, when you're at a, a media institution full time. Um, I'm in a great situation now because I can really focus on policy, but I find I'm increasingly fatigued of the the partisan stuff, the Look, look what AOC just said, or the Mueller investigation, or, you know, those kinds of things, right? That interests me a lot less. Uh, but with the, the policy areas I'm really interested in are kind of fiscal conservatism, broadly defined. So government waste, inefficiency, and fraud. I've, I've written so much about that. Fiscal conservatism or free market thought as applied to higher education you know, how the feds created the student loan bubble and inflated the price of college and how a bailout for student loans would disproportionately actually help well-off and well-educated people. It's actually regressive policy. So those are just a couple things, but ultimately, whether it's big tech or tariffs or immigration, I really want to, I want to be a a free market policy guy. So I want to debate policy changes and ideas um, more so than kind of partisan or super political or election hat predicting and that kind of thing. Let's take into the student loan issue a little bit more because it's something, especially with Biden coming in, he's already talking about, uh, you know, sweeping student loan forgiveness and this sort of thing. So it's something we're going to be hearing about a lot. And it, it is a crisis in many ways. It, many you know, people are trillions of dollars in student loan debt. Uh, how would you go about like kind of trying to solve this from a free market perspective? I mean, I guess in the first place, you probably wouldn't have all these loans. Not probably. You definitely wouldn't have all these all these loans just being handed out. Uh, in a free market system. But I mean, now that we're here, now that all these loans are out there and so many people do find themselves over water, what would be sort of a libertarian free market approach to trying to solve this problem besides just a government bailout, which we know, you know, I love how they call it canceling debt. It's not getting canceled. The the banks are going to get their money. There's no, there's not going to be any cancellation. They're just not going to make the exact people that took it out pay for it themselves. Taxpayers pay. Um, so I guess I want to push back on sure. the premise a little bit because I, I'm not sure I agree that it's okay. a crisis. I, I, ne- I don't necessarily. So oftentimes people who are pushing big government policies use the language of crisis to kind of and rush I fell and for say, it we got to do something. Look, it's, it worked on me. <laughs> no, 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 no. I understand. It is a problem. There, There is obviously, like you said, 1.5 trillion, or I think it actually just hit 1.7 trillion in total student debt. It is a problem. I think, though, that the claims of crisis are somewhat overstated. If you look at the median monthly payment that an average graduate owes, it's between $200 and $300. Now, that's not nothing, right? Like, But I'm saying if you have a that's college degree, a for, for should, I don't think that's quite a crisis. So I think we have to be careful not to seed that ground to progressives because they call everything a crisis because when it's a crisis, how could you possibly not support doing something? And I'm just, I'm kind of curious how many people in that sort of crisis in quote situation have the newest iPhone every year, uh, you know, subscribe to every single streaming platform, uh, have a really nice car they pay a lease on, probably a lot. Well, and and the ones, there are some people who are buried in, in mountains of debt, but oftentimes those are doctors and lawyers, actually, if you look at the numbers. Um, 
but obviously there are some people who are truly in a not a great spot with the student loans. And it's, it's certainly not something you wish on anyone. Um, but I first pivot to how we got here. You know, people didn't have these kind of student loans 40 years ago. Colleges weren't nearly as expensive. Adjusted for inflation, the cost of college has skyrocketed over time, um, over since 1980. It's much more expensive than it ever was. And the question is why? Now, people think, oh, are colleges just greedy or wasteful? And maybe a little, but that's not most of it. What actually happened is that the federal government created these student loan programs where they subsidize student loans. And economic research shows that most of the increased uh, loan money was just absorbed in tuition hikes. It's like if you artificially inflate demand for a product, prices go up. So what happened is that most of it was passed through for every dollar, and I don't have the research in front of me, but for every dollar that was given out in loans, colleges just jacked up prices 70 cents or 60 cents, and they just kept pouring more money onto the fuel. Uh, and what happens is twofold there. One, it just inflates the cost of college, so people need more loans. And two, in a free market, if you had to go to a bank and get a loan, a private bank, they'd only give you a loan if they, if, and you would only want one if it was going to be a net positive investment, right? You said, okay, I need to borrow $100,000. I'm going to go study finance. The average earning is $60,000. I can pay that back within 10 years. The banker would say, here you go. Here's your loan. Boom, approved. If you went to him and said, I want to go to Princeton and take out 70 grand a year in loans to study feminist art dance. Um, they would probably not give you that loan, <laughs> but the government gave out this, these loans indiscriminately. And then, you know, young people, it's, it's a kind of a tall task that we ask people at 17 or 18 to make these huge decisions about their future, but the government enabled them to make whatever possible decision under the sun they wanted, uh, not literally, but more or less, uh, with these loan programs. So they created this big disaster. So I, the question of what do you do instead um, I think first you go address that root problem, or this is just going to keep coming up. And then I think the student loan bailout is not at all a fair or equitable or efficient um, policy response. How you would solve it is if you were going to do any student loan relief, it should be narrowly targeted to people who most of the time, the people that can't pay their student loans are people who racked up debt and actually can't graduate. And so there's people who went to two or three years of college, racked up 50 grand of loans, and then had a family crisis, dropped out, became a janitor, and can't pay their bills every month. That is a narrow subgroup that maybe actually you could make a case for some relief, or you could make a case for a widespread charitable program to pay down their loans. I think, though, this idea of broad student debt cancellation, it makes no sense. A study actually from the University of Chicago this week found that it would give six times more benefits to the top 20%, the richest 20% of income earners would get six times more benefits from student debt cancellation than the bottom 20%. It's essentially making taxpayers redistribute resources to the well-off segment of society. Uh, and so it, it's just a, a, a horrible idea all around. Yeah, it's about one of the least fair things, as you called it, regressive. I mean, when I, when I think of 
when you talk about the gender, the person that's in debt uh, that went to school and had to become a gender, I think of the guy who just became a janitor. And now that guy has to, you're asking that guy to pay everybody else's debt for the mistakes that they made, uh, you know, for, for not working out for them. Right. That's just completely unfair. I think it, it's very unfair. You know, it's like you're t- the average college graduate who, and they hold most of the loans, right, is much wealthier and earns much more money than the average taxpayer. So to have taxpayers pick up the tab, it's really just an unfair redistribution of wealth. And the question is, why? Why do progressive Democrats like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Elizabeth Warren support it anyway? I don't think they're bad people. I don't think they're evil. Um, But I think the reality is that who is their constituency base? Young people? highly educated, wealthy New Yorkers and Massachusetts residents. So there's very clearly a direct political patronage or kind of favoritism angle to Democrats are pushing this policy that goes against their normal beliefs, which are they support progressive policies, not regressive. Well, there's this this one exception, and it happens to just coincidentally really help our base of voters. And color me a little bit skeptical that that's not a factor in any of their minds when they're coming out with these proposals. Hey there, kitty cats. I need to take a quick little break to remind you that if you love coffee and I need coffee, I need coffee to get through interviews at this point, because let's say so I just passed 40. I need a little extra kick in my step. And I get that kick from our good friends at Lauren Zotti Italy. These guys have some premium coffee blends at an amazing price. You want to check them out at laurenzotti.coffee. That's laurenzotti.coffee, not .com. And what I love about these guys is that they aren't just fine coffee connoisseurs. They are also not just entrepreneurs themselves, but they are out there helping other people start their own businesses. Uh, They help people procure equipment, financing, and everything else they need to start their own coffee shops. So please do check out our friends at Lauren Zotti Italy. Don't forget to use discount code LIONS for 10% off your order. All right, Brad, there's one subject that I've got to ask you about, because when I mentioned that I was interviewing you in our private group, uh, the Lions of Liberty Pride group for our Patreon supporters, uh, a couple of people mentioned, hey, isn't that the guy that's against owning tanks? And on July 2nd of 2020, you tweeted, I do not believe individuals should be allowed to own tanks. Brad, what's going on here? What's the, what's the problem with tanks? <laughs> It's kind of become a meme at this point, and it's kind of fun just like trolling my true, pure libertarian friends uh, like Austin Peterson and Brian Nichols. And I'll add you to the list and your listeners. So this I honestly just found it like a funny meme that people actually support this and that this was even a thing. My logic is essentially that. Also, we have to define a tank. Yes, we do. Because sure. it's actually not as straightforward as I imagined. What counts as I a tank? I could strap a couple a couple Uzis to my car, and maybe it's a tank. <laughs> no. But I more so mean like if you have a tank and it's just a vehicle and it doesn't have an intact artillery system, I'm okay with that being legal. But I so the whole question, right, is like. I'm very pro Second Amendment on any issue in our politics, basically. But obviously, there's a line somewhere, or maybe there's not. But for me, there is. I don't support people. Bill Gates shouldn't be able to build himself a nuke, right? There's a line somewhere. Oh, that was smart. I like what you did there, using Bill Gates as the exa- as the supervillain example. Yeah, I mean, that was smooth. <laughs> I, I'm not anti-vax. I promise. Um, but <laughs> listen. If billionaires shouldn't be able to build them, what if Bill Gates wants to wants to build a giant vaccine bomb? That can vaccinate. I don't know. No, 
Um, but so I guess my logic is that there has to be a line somewhere and people having literal tanks is to me just slightly past the line. And I think most Americans would agree with me on that point. You're probably right. Uh, I, I guess the it's also question just is just a funny meme at this yeah, point. I mean, I, I'm asking it really not to get into a deep philosophical question about tanks per se, uh, more just to have fun with it like we are. But I mean, it does bring up the question sort of because, I mean, th- the same question does come up uh, from legitimate, you know, anti-Second Amendment people. They, they will say, you know, well, you know, when it comes to like certain weapons, that certain guns or, or what have you, they'll say, well, that's too dangerous for individuals to have. So only the government should have it. Uh, so I guess like where does that line come in where you say something has become too dangerous for an individual to own? But if that's the case, why can we then trust the government to own that same piece of equipment, whether it's a certain type of gun, a tank, a nuke, what have you? Right. I'm sympathetic to that point. But to me, it comes down to the evidence. For example, I don't support bans on assault weapons. Why? Partially is philosophical and theoretical, but partially it's also just that like the evidence shows that those kinds of bans do not help. They don't prevent murders. They don't like they we had a ban and even liberal analysts at Vox admit our assault weapons ban didn't work. Um, So to me, to some extent, any policy. So I'm not an absolutist. I'm very libertarian leaning on everything. Um, but whether it's decriminalizing cocaine instead of legalizing it, uh, there's a lot of places where maybe I'm a little more pragmatic or I'm more incrementalist. Um, but I tend to think that no one ideology, 1000% purist, has the solutions to every problem we face uh, in life. And so I, I guess I would say that tanks are like a funny example of this in that I'm just not a total libertarian dogmatist to the point of like the absolute true believers. You listen, you get purity points that I don't have. Um, But I think that's also kind of when you're operating in the pure kind of liberty, libertarian specific spaces, you can be a purist, but when you want to go out and reach people, you do have to kind of be within the Overton window of where they are. And I know it's a funny meme, but I, it's like when Joe Jorgensen publicly stated that she supports private tank ownership and then she dodged on oh, is that, private was that, nuke Was that what that was in response to? Was that her saying something? Yes. That, I didn't just say that out of nowhere. That was her. I thought you did it and, purely um, to try to, to try to anger the, the hardcore libertarians. Which well, and, and what I'm saying is like, we can have this esoteric academic debate about where the line is and tanks versus AK-47s. If you are a presidential candidate of the United States running for United States president, and you're just walking around on your Twitter saying you support private tank ownership, the average person on the street is going to think you're a nut job, right? Like that's just very beyond the Overton window of where most people are at. And so to some extent, it's just a pragmatism thing that I, I want to meet people where they're at and bring them in a liberty direction. And I think the best case for that starts with popular issues like drug decriminalization, like school choice, like criminal justice reform, like lower taxes, uh, like bringing the troops home. And I don't really have a lot of patience for these super esoteric, super extreme stances. Like when you have the libertarians talking about child sex robots or tanks, like I get it. It's funny. It's a meme. We can talk about it, but that's not how you actually reach people. Hey, let's not compare and child it, sex robots to tanks now. Come on. Okay. One, I They're could both... see one. I could see having fun riding in and one is a tank. No, one, and one is a child sex robot. But... <laughs> oh my God. Uh, I know, I know. And no, it's a joke and I get it. And I'm, I like, I like libertarians. I like 
people in these circles, but I will say that like, if you want to reach your average American, and that's what I really want to do with my journalism. I write for a lay audience, not for academics or policy wonks, but I want to just reach the average person that sees my article come across in their social media timeline. So I'm much more focused on issues where I think uh, the Overton window is open to being pulled in a libertarian direction. And as much as the libertarian party has struggled and libertarian Republicans have also struggled actual issue areas have trended in a libertarian direction on things like foreign wars and drug decriminalization and, you know, gay marriage and all this stuff. There are some areas where we're winning. Uh, and so I think those areas are, are where I think the, the biggest emphasis should be. Well, Brad, you, you've described yourself as a libertarian conservative. And obviously when you're, when you're kind of riding that line, there's going to be people that identify with some of those groups that don't like what you say about one issue or another. So maybe, maybe for libertarians, they get in an uproar when you say something against owning tanks. So, but I'm curious from the other side of things, are there any positions that you hold that are sort of more from the libertarian side that get conservatives up in arms when they hear about? Oh, yeah, for sure. I've always said that when I'm among libertarians, I feel conservative. And when I'm among conservatives, I feel libertarian. Uh, So uh, one thing, I believe in decriminalizing sex work. I don't personally think that prostitution is moral or good, uh, but I don't think locking people up helps anything. And I think it just makes everything worse. It's worse for women and promotes crime and um, and for example, I've argued that actually in columns in conservative publications to an audience that strongly disagrees with that. I, uh, I'm, I'm libertarian on the question of regulating big tech and populist rah-rah conservatives certainly don't appreciate that opinion these days. Same thing with tariffs. Um, conservatives, I think there's still kind of a, a, a strong strand of free market conservatives, but there's also this populist conservative movement And I really push back on a lot of their ideas and their policy positions. I mean, Josh Hawley thinks the big daddy fed federal government should regulate Snapchat streaks. Uh, If that's the future of conservatism, then I will be making them mad a lot with what I have to say, because I think that is the antithesis of individual liberty and, and the American constitutional system of limited government that really does make America great. Yeah, for some reason, Conservatives in particular, I don't want to generalize, generalize, but often I see conservatives seem to have a problem separating something that you don't support or don't think is good from the idea that it shouldn't necessarily be illegal. Like, I would never recommend to anybody that they do heroin. In fact, I would physically intervene if I knew I had friends that were doing heroin. I would never advocate those same friends be put in jail for using it because now we're just making a problem so much worse than it was. Now, not only do you have, they have a ha- potential heroin problem or, or whatever physical uh, you know, complications can come from using a dangerous drug like that, uh, now they're in jail. Now, now they might have a felony on their record. Now, oh, now they can't get a job. Now, now now they have a litany of new problems and they probably haven't even fixed the heroin problem if all you've done is throw them throw them in jail. No, I, I completely agree. And this actually, it happens um, sometimes, though I think Republicans have moved a long way on this and conservatives. This happens sometimes on the question of LGBT issues. So, for example, some of the typical right wing meathead commentators were extremely triggered and angry about a video that went viral like last week or something where there was a bunch of kids being taught about like gender neutral pronouns and transgender. And they were teaching this to very young children at some sort of like left-wing religious ceremony. And my take is, oh, I don't like that. That's too far for me. I'm never taking my kid to that sort of event. Their take was, this is child abuse. Put those people in jail. 
Um, and, and so clearly they, they can't make that distinction between these the same people talking about religious liberty the next week. Right. And I'm, I agree with them, but I'm like, I mean, this is progressive religious liberty. Right. You, got, you can't have it both ways. So I agree with you completely. Because a lot of progressives that, might think what they teach their children about religion or what have you is wrong, too. And they might use the same argument. Say, well, then that, that should be banned. They should that's be banned. exactly what I said to Matt Walsh at The Daily Wire. But he he can't hear it. Um that many progressives would consider what his church teaches to be just as bad as he thinks that, that is. And, and so what I fundamentally believe in is pluralism, coexistence, kind of, and this has become a little bit of a cringe term, but classical liberalism, right? Like living side by side in institutions that treat everyone equally without infringing on each other's rights with a small limited government that kind of does address certain key issues of, of life. But I will, I will add in one thing uh, to throw a little wrench into this. I think libertarians can be guilty of the same thing. Oh, yeah. Libertarians, We're guilty of everything that we are well, critical of people. I, I, I don't subscribe to the, the, you know, the fear-mongering of libertarians run Washington. Rah, rah, rah. Yeah, that, that's the, I, I the strangest meme I, I ever hear is the idea that libertarian influence is doing anything. <laughs> I hear it all the time from Tucker Carlson and these other populist people. And it's just so mythical. But so to my point, though, I think libertarians can be too libertine. So I know some libertarians, uh, you know, that, that work at specific publications where they've got this vibe where not only do we advocate for things to be legal, but also everything is great, right? Like drugs are wonderful and good. Uh, they're not just not just should be legal because criminalizing them is bad policy, hurts people, uh, doesn't make sense for 10 different reasons. But these things should be celebrated. It's like libertarians can sometimes be too, I think, libertine. And then if you're not also personally libertine, then you're not a real libertarian. Like, I think prostitution is immoral. That doesn't make me not a libertarian because I don't believe in criminalizing it. Right. I don't believe in using the state to force my morality onto others. And I think that particularly what I would call left libertarians have this tendency to view people who agree with them on the policy question, but have different morality or cultural dispositions as not libertarian. And libertarian is not the same thing as libertine. And I will fight to the death on that point against those people. Right. I mean, as as a political philosophy, I mean, when we're talking political philosophy, the only thing we really are talking about is what should be legal is, is at what point the state should be allowed to use violence to stop people from doing a certain thing. Uh, so within libertarianism, there's a plethora of things that that should be legal. Uh, most things, really. But there's going to be people along all sides of those those that it, those issues that that still that all agree it should be legal that are going to have very different opinions. I mean, there are libertarians that are very much morally like yourself against prostitution, uh, but they still believe it should be legal. While there are others that might think it's a wonderful, empowering thing. But the point is, we agree on the legal aspect of it. But I think things can get messy when people want to add their own cultural, personal preferences and make that a part of the, of the the sort of libertarian legal or, or philosophical argument. Uh, they're fine opinions to have, but they really are separate opinions from from the political side. I agree. I think they should at least be treated as such. Um, because I mean, the funny thing about libertarians is it's such a small political coalition, but it's also a coalition that's constantly determined to tell other people they're not part of it. Um, And like we could, we could, we could bitch about libertarian infighting and pure and purity tests and all this all day. Um, But fundamentally, I think some people believe in limited government and some people believe in big government and it's increasingly becoming less a question of 
uh, Republican versus Democrat, red versus blue, and more fundamentally about do you believe in a big government where you use the state to pursue your ends, whether your ends are socially conservative and anti-tech or whether your ends are woke and socialist, or there's people kind of, I think, in the middle or on either side that don't believe in that kind of um, conquer through the state mentality. And those people, I think, within that broad coalition is where we can all kind of form a coalition. Well, Brad, uh, before I let you go, I mean, you're not just uh, you're not just doing written work out there, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, you've also started a podcast a couple of months ago, uh, Breaking Boundaries. And, dude, if I say so myself, you're killing it already. I mean, you've had people like Rand Paul on. As you mentioned, you had Gre- Glenn Greenwald on. So you have really used these contacts you've made in journalism to land some amazing guests. So why don't you just tell us a little bit more about what you've been doing with the podcast and uh, you know, feel free to plug away on anything else you got going on. Yeah, absolutely. So the podcast I started about two months ago, it's gotten off to a great start. Like, like you mentioned, um, I've had, I've had Rand, I'm actually, and I'm not going to make any promises, but your listeners should go subscribe. It's breaking boundaries. Uh, and it's on Apple podcasts and Spotify. I cross my fingers. Think I'm getting Tulsi Gabbard to come on this month. We're like this close. We're like pretty close to getting it booked. Um, but so long Long story short, the uh, the point of the podcast is exactly what you said. I met all these interesting, cool people, uh, you know, from Rand to Glenn to uh, the governor of New Hampshire I just had last week through my journalism career. And I, I figure I want a personal outlet where I can have conversations zoomed out like you and I are doing about big picture stuff, not, oh, what the news was today and Trump said this and AOC said that, but, you know, big picture ideas. And I want to have these conversations because so often these politicians and these people are just asked about like the talking points of the day. And I'm interested more in hearing about their philosophy and their ideas. Uh, and so it'll be politicians, it'll be journalists, it'll be uh, think tankers, writers, other podcast hosts, YouTubers. Um, but really, at the end of the day, I'm, I want to interview people that have something interesting to say about ideas that matter in the big picture. So it's Breaking Boundaries with Brad Palumbo. Apple Podcasts and Spotify are the two main platforms, but it's across the rest of them. So any of your listeners want to check it out, um, they, they should, because hopefully if they like this conversation, they'll like the show, too. And I figure if they're listening at this point, they probably like this conversation. So hopefully, hopefully they'll want to. They don't hate me too much. Check out, yeah, or at least they can at least stand you at, at this point. Uh, if the tank thing didn't turn them off too much, but uh, uh, Brad, it's been awesome having you on, man. Uh, before I let you go, if you want to take one more round and just plug away on anything, how they can find you on Twitter, uh, make sure they spell Palumbo right, and uh, you know, tick tick all the boxes for everybody. Yeah, so on Twitter, it's Brad underscore Palumbo, P-O-L-U-M-B-O. Follow me on there. That have all the links to the podcast too. And that's that's pretty much it. So uh, uh, thanks again for having me on, man. Yeah, Brad, it's been a been an absolutely awesome time talking to you. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. So keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. All right, kitty cats. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Brad Palumbo, one of the many great guests I've got lined up for this month. So many that I'm not even going to be able to publish them all this month, at least not publicly. But guess who's going to get all of those interviews first? That is the members of the Lions of Liberty Pride, our supporters on Patreon. Again, like I mentioned at the top of the show, you're going to get two free months if you sign up for an annual Patreon membership by between now and the end of the year. So you do not want to miss out on that. Listen to the interviews I've got lined up. 
Peter Schiff, Glenn Jacobs, Vin Armani, and I've got the Dave Smith Archie Flower debate that will be streaming live to the Pride Secret Facebook group. There is no better time to join the Lions of Liberty Pride. That's not even talking about all our extra bonus content, Degenerate Gamblers, Conspiracy Corner, Drunken Howie Story. There's just so much bonus content coming at you because we really do appreciate that our fans are out there supporting the show and we try to give back as much as possible. One thing I forgot to mention at the top, anybody who signs up for an annual membership at the equivalent of $15 a month or higher will also get a nice Lions of Liberty beanie to keep their little keppies warm for the rest of the year. That's right. I said keppy. It's the Yiddish. Look it up. Uh, For the rest of the year, you're going to be able to wear that nice beanie, stick those earbuds in, be nice and warm and cozy while you're listening to the greatest libertarian variety show on earth. Of course, it's not just me here every single Monday on the flagship. We also got Brian McWilliams every single Wednesday with his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land, while John Odie Odermatt wraps things up every Friday with his incredible, hard-hitting, inspiring look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. You get all three shows for the price of one, and that price is free, my friends. All you gotta do is whack the heck out of that subscribe button to get every single show on the Lions of Liberty podcast feed. And if you just can't get enough of your favorite Lions of Liberty hosts talking about liberty here every week, guess what? We've got some other podcasts as well. Myself, along with our good friend Remzo Martinez of the We Are Libertarians Network, we actually host a comic book podcast called the Second Print Comics Podcast. This thing has really been taken off. We've been getting some amazing feedback. If you've ever been into comic books, if you are into the Marvel movies or the DC movies, uh, if you ever thought you might have an interest, I encourage you to just check out this show once. Just give it the old once over. And if you don't like it, fine, move along. But I think you're gonna, especially uh, if you know that Remzo and myself are libertarians, you're gonna hear a lot of those themes come through, even though it is a strictly non-political show. You know, we are who we are, and these things do come out. So I think you're gonna really enjoy what we're doing over there. And of course, Brian, Odie, and our friend Rico our international lawyerly man of mystery, uh, they team up to bring you the weekly Bravo and Beer where they look at bad reality TV shows while, of course, drinking beer. How fun is that? It's very fun. So be sure to check out all of our podcasts, not just Lions Liberty, Second Print Comics Podcast, Bravo and Beer. That's all I've got for you, kids. Until next time. Live long and live free.